Welcome to My Life, Chassidus Applied, episode 248. This uh, program is dedicated in loving memory of Betzal Jacobson by his son Yerachemiel Jacobson and family, and in loving memory of Shai Gansberg by his family. Both yard sites are on Zion Oder this week. The yard site and birthday of Moshe Rabbeinu. So we'll begin, as we always do, with something related to the time in which we are in, which is Zion Oder this week, on Tuesday, as well as Pasha Tetzava. Now, of course, this year is a Iberyar, a Shonimu Beres, a leap year, with an additional month of Oder, so we have an other Rishon, other Sheni. So we're now in the beginnings of the first other, and we honor the yard site of Zion other and other Rishon. There's a reason Purim is in the second other. The Gemara asked the question, which other when it's a when it's a Shanamu Beres, when it's a uh, leap year, in which other should we celebrate Purim? And there, there's a special le- learning because Mismach Gula Legula. So you want to connect. And uh, that from one month, Mismach, to make close, to associate the, revel- the redemption of Nisan, of Pesach in Nisan, to redemption of Purim. So therefore you make it in the second other, which is closer to Nisan. But in general, the other Rishon is the one that most things we honor in that, that month, except, of course, if a person is born in other Sheni, in Ebiyar, so obviously his birthday is then. Um, and or other Rishon, then, of course, it's another Rishon. So it's Zayin Adar this, uh, this week, as well as Pasha Tetzaveh. So let's speak about that for a moment. It's always good to begin with Divrei Teira, Lebmed Tetzayit, living with the time, because that's what gives us strength. Teira is Chayenu uh, our life and our sustenance. Hashem Eiz Yitain, God gives Eiz strength and power. So the strength and power to deal with all the challenges in life, with the difficulties including different setbacks and even tragedies, as we shall talk about, sadly, comes from Teda. So it's always good to Peschim Bidvar Malchus to begin with Teda. It ties us above and gives us the strength to endure and um, thrive, even, through any type of situation. So Zion Oder, of course, as I said, is the birthday and the yard site of Moshe Rabbeinu. Certain Sadikim, the Malash Neseim, the Ebishter fulfills their years, that they pass away exactly the day they were born. By the Rabbeim, the Mitla Rebbe was that way, Tes Kislev. It shows on a complete cycle. Here's not the place to go into discussing what about so many other, most Sadikim, it's not that way. The Rebbe explains it in a number of places. <clears throat> so regarding Moshe Rabbeinu, lived 120 years, which is also the complete cycle of life, after the Mabel. So you see, Moshe Rabbeinu was an individual who was lived in this world was a Dugmil Lamaila, Isha Lakim. He was a living example, personified what it means to be a divine human being, meaning a human being that's completely aligned to what God wants him to be. And he was the closest to perfection. Even Moshe Rabbeinu, because we're still living in Golis and Mashiach is not here, and Moshe Rabbeinu, when the end of his life, was not a perfect world yet, and that's why he did not go into Israel, that's Israel along with his generation, except for Kolov and Yeshua. But nevertheless, we learned that Moshe Rabbeinu achieved of the 50 gates of Bina, Nun Shari Bina, Chamishim Shari Bina, that God created, Moshe reached 49 of them. 
And on the day of his passing, the day of his istalkus, as the Magid explains, Har Nevoi, Nevoi is the mountain where Moshe went up, and that was his final place. Nevoi is the letters Nun Boy, 50 within it, because that's when he reached the 50th gate. What is the lesson to us? So there's a whole chapter in Tanya, Perik Membez, that says that even though Moshe Rabbeinu, no one can compare to him, but we have a Moshe within each one of us. And that's why Moshe was able to say, At Yisrael, Now Israel, what is God already asking of you? All he is asking, to fear him, to have offer for him. So the Altar says, the Gemara says rather, Yira for God is a small thing that Moshe is saying like, what's he already asking of you? It's no big thing. So the Gemara answers, yeah. For Moshe Rabbeinu, it's taka milse zutrasa. So the Alter Rebbe has the question, but that's Moshe Rabbeinu. The point is that Moshe said it to the Kal Yisrael, to all the Jews. So he answers, because in each one of us is a Moshe, and compared to the Moshe, it's something each of us can achieve. This teaches us immediately that everything that happened to Moshe in his lifetime, the whole Chumash, we all have a me'ain, bedakus, in some subtle microcosmic way, we have a form of that. Because Moshe is, of course, the first Rebbe. And Neshama Klolis, Moshe Rabbeinu. And as a Rebbe, we each have a piece of that within us. So Zayin Oder, the day that he was born, and the day that it's nostalgic, both relate to us. Now we know what the Alter Rebbe writes in the Geras is the day that Neshama goes back to its source. So it's the day when all his work comes together. So that's why it's explained in Svarim, and it's cited in a number of places that Rebbe cites it, that that's why the only Pasha in the Teda where Moshe's name is not mentioned after he was born, of course, in Pasha Shmes, is Pasha Tetzava, this week's Pasha. Why is his mention, name not mentioned? So some commentaries say, because it's a reminder, it's an honoring that this day Moshe was missing. So his name is not mentioned. <clears throat> so even though it was Moshe, so it says, Atatetzava, you, doesn't say Moshe. But the deeper, to say that it's only a negative, just to remind us of the sadness of Moshe's missing, so to speak, his name is no longer there, the Rebbe explains, based on other places, that Moshe's name is not mentioned, but the etzim of Moshe is definitely referred to. Ata, Ata, when you say Ata, like Ata Ares Ladas, on the Ebeshti, you're referring to Ata Loshanechach, like you're speaking to him directly. You're not talking about his name. So there's a level in godliness where we say that he's beyond any name, as it is with each of us. Our name definitely connects to our core, but it's not the core. So on Zayin both the birth of Mesha and the Istalkas of Mesha, the core of Mesha Rabbeinu is revealed. And what happened on the Zayin We read the end of Chumash, that Mesha Rabbeinu sacrificed his life for the Jewish people. And the last verse, for all the signs and wonders that Moshe did before the eyes of Israel. And Rashi says, what did he do? He broke the tablets. And the Ebershah said, thank you for breaking them. The classic sikh, one of the most moving and powerful sikhs of the Rebbe, Simchas Teireh Tavshim Amzayin, that he dissected this Rashi with tears in his eyes, explained it. Very rare to see on Simchas Teireh. I remember it vividly like today. Unbelievable sikhim. 
where the Rebbe has the question, what kind of, the, we, the breaking of the tablets is a day we fast for, the 17th of Tammuz, Shabbos of Tammuz. It's considered a tragic day. And not only is God, not only is that, God is saying thank you for it. And Rashi could not find any other great things that Moshe Rabbeinu did. The, Ma, the Makis in, Israel, in Egypt, the Itzias Mitzrayim, Kriyas Yamsuf, Matantev, the building of the Mishkan, all the wonders that happened throughout the 40 years that they traveled in the wilderness. Of all things, breaking the tablets. The kids and Imrits, the Rebbe explained, yes, because all other things are great things. But if you really want to see the Etzem, the Va'ato, the Etzem of Meshur Ben, you know where you see it? In the breaking of the tablets. Because he sacrificed the most sacred thing of all. Not just a Sefer Teda. The tablets. And which tablets? The first tablets that God himself engraved and God himself presented. Why? As Rashi says in another place, because he wanted to tear up the Ksuba, the contract. The Jews had sinned and they were culpable and responsible. But they did not yet receive the tablets. By breaking the tablets, Mesha was basically saying, yes, they heard it, that you should not have false gods, but they did not sign it. He was preparing a defense of the Jewish people. His love was so great, he was ready to sacrifice the Torah itself, the holiest, the Luchas. And himself, like he said, erase my name from the Sefer. Which is why he doesn't say his name at Tetzavah, to remind us of that Mesirah Nefesh. Of a Rebbe, of a Moshe Rabbeinu, ready to give not just away his physical life, his spiritual life, his connection to Teireh, erase my name from your book, from your holy book. This is God's Sefer, it's not just some book. And yet that's what a Rebbe does, that's what a Moshe Rabbeinu does. And that's what we connect to on Zainod, the Etzim of Moshe. And just as a Moshe in his time is Pashtusa, the Moshe, Bechol Dara every generation has a Moshe, the Moshe of our generation, our Rebbe, <clears throat> which is an extension of that Mesha, and, and the Mesha within each one of us. So it t- teaches us, and this week we have the power to connect to the core level that's beyond Giluyim, beyond revelation, beyond what our senses can experience, the core touching the core, the core of the Mesha within each of us, receiving the energy from the Mesha of the generation, receiving the energy from the Mesha Klolis of all generations. That's a lesson. What does it in personal terms mean? It means no matter what happens in your life, and we all have our ups and downs, there's a core pilot flame always burning. I may be asleep, or I am asleep. My heart is awake. So we all have that core essential part within us. And that is what Pasha Tetzav and Zayinodit remind us. That when you hold on to that core, you can get through any situation because that core is not subject to Helam and Gili, to revelation or concealment, because it's a core, it's an etzem. Etzem, bilti mezgala, bilti mishtana, is not, is not subject to these changes. Now, of course, we don't just want the etzem, we want Moshe in a revealed way. We want the Rebbe in a revealed way. We want it in a way that we can tangibly and, pal- and palpably relate to it. However, it's a great consolation, a great strength, knowing that that core remains with us. And it's our work that we need to do. Mazare b'chaim that we need to live according to the guidelines of Moshe Rabbeinu and of the Moshe of our generation, and that brings them alive in the, in the physical sense and ultimately with Mashiach's coming in the most physical sense in the full reunion and the full integration of matter and spirit as will happen in that time. So that's a lesson among other lessons. I want to cross-reference to 
other uh, episodes where I spoke about this topic, episodes 57, 103, 153, and 202. These episodes are all time-stamped, so when you go look at MeaningfulLife.com slash MyLife, you can just go to the YouTube version and you'll find exactly the section you're looking for. Many people ask me for that, so I keep reminding you that's what you can do. Before I continue to the questions, I want to announce that this Tuesday night will be the, is the deadline, midnight, New York time, of the fifth annual My Life Citizen Applied Essay Contest. Essays have been coming in, but you still have till Tuesday night. So please use this opportunity, share it with others. It'll probably be the greatest year of all, both the, the, different, the, the amount of essays and the different, the, the different places they're coming from. Students, everybody has an equal chance to win. I assure you that. The rules are made specifically in a way that are not exclusive only for the best writers or only for the people who understand Chassidus best, but someone who follows those guidelines of applying an idea to a real-life situation, to a real-life challenge, is the key. Follow the guidelines. Make sure you go through the checklist of everything that's required because that's how the papers are marked. So, good luck. It should be about Slach And what better time as we are beginning in the month of Adar, as we move to Adar, to Nissan into Adashani and then into Nissan, and we'll be judging and we'll give you updates as we go. When we enter Adar, we increase in Simcha. So here's a question that literally came in today, and sadly, I'd rather not talk about it, but how could you not? And I'm going to read it exactly as the writer writes it, and I, get, I feel that he captures the sentiment of many, many. Dear Rabbi Jacobson, has Hashem gotten confused between Adar and Av? In the five short days of Adar, Rabbi, Rabbi Chil Ekstein, a leader in Jewish philanthropy, had a massive heart attack at 67 and passed away. A 19-year-old girl was brutally violated and murdered in Jerusalem. A young man, Moshe Deitch, passed away. And there was a horrific bus crash in Israel, killing two sisters and injuring 41. What the heck is going on? Uncensored question. Friedrich Rebbe says a number of places that they're just difficult to speak, but it's even more difficult to remain silent. So I take that cue, being that this is a forum that many people listen to, and being that it is trying to the best of my ability to convey in an authentic way and uh, with the true integrity, full integrity, of the Rebbe and the Rabbeim's spirit and words and wishes, what we need to do is gather together. This is the times where we strengthen each other, and we hold on for our dear life to to the tree of life, which is the Torah, Torah in general, from Moshe Rabbeinu, especially being that this is weak as is Yemaledis and Yemistalkus. And Torah includes the Torah of all the generations, and particularly the Torah of the Rabbeim, close to us, and the Rebbe. This is what gives us strength. Does it give us answers? Not necessarily. We don't know God's mysterious ways. And that's the best answer. To try to explain things, to try to justify, is actually cruel and insensitive. What we have to do is what the Rambam says in the beginning of Hilchas Tainius, that it's also cruel and insensitive to see it as just an accident. So we don't have to find answers. We don't, God forbid to see it as an accident. We have to look at, look, use this 
as an opportunity of introspection, where we stand in our own Avis and Agdus Yisrael, where we stand in our own personal relationship with God. It's not about pointing fingers. Each of us has to look inside ourselves. Obviously, we have to do everything possible to help console and strengthen and be there with the people who are grieving. But the greatest thing we always do, we take the grief and we turn it into a positive energy, an additional mitzvah, additional learning teda, additional tzedakah, additional prayer tefillah, teda vedig milas chasadim, upon the three pillars upon which the entire world rests and upon which each individual microcosm, each of us as a universe, a microcosm rests. This is the way we do it. Do we fully understand how it gives us strength? Not necessarily, but it gives strength. And this is how we endure, and this is how we march forward. As I said earlier, when we hold on to Teda, and Primis HaTeda, Chesidus, which is the inner soul, and the Etzem HaTeda, sometimes it's called the Etzem, like Moshe Rabbeinu has an Etzem, the Teda has an Etzem. And it all connects to Israel, Teda, and God are all one on that core level, this is what allows us to transcend even the harshest and to get through it and to be stronger. And in some way that provides the answer because we get stronger through it. We don't get demoralized. We don't get weakened. We don't withdraw or retreat. We use it as a catalyst for greater growth. That's the healthy and the truest way to address all these things. When it comes in the beginning of Adr, which is supposed to be a time of joy that only magnifies and amplifies the quandary, but it's still that means that we have an opportunity to add in joy. Joy is not a contradiction to tragedy. What that means is that sometimes we have to celebrate through tears. What are we celebrating? Not the tragedy, obviously. We're celebrating that we are here and we're connected. The soul lives on. And we will do whatever is possible to continue the legacy and perpetuate the legacy of that neshama. So there's something to celebrate in that sense. You don't celebrate, obviously, with the halachic guidelines of how one celebrates when there's a tragedy. But simcha does not just mean dancing and, and saying l'chaim. Simcha is a simcha sachaim, is an inner, an inner joy, an inner, even an inner celebration of life itself and that we have the opportunity to do whatever we can to eradicate that to the point where there no longer will be a mocha Hashem and zima ma'al kol ponim that to eradicate and erase that there no longer be a tear in any face when Mashiach comes and the gula mitis v'ashlema and we're reunited with all our loved ones. So that's what this time is. I cannot go and explain exactly what all this means. As I said, this is the time-tested and true and time-tested way that we've been taught and we follow what we've been taught. I will say that being a Shana Mubedis, I mentioned this I think last week or the few weeks before this, is a year when the Rabbeim were always somewhat tentative, somewhat uh, hesitant, somewhat uh, paused, you can say, because a Shana Mubedis does remind us of the wound of the moon when it was diminished, which is the whole reason why we make a leap here. Again, this is not the coming to explain anything, it's just coming to teach us as well. But what does the leap year do? We don't just recognize the wound. We add an entire month where it becomes even a greater year, a longer year than a regular solar year. Suddenly the lunar year, because as a 13th month, is stronger than ever. This lunar, this moon, 
which was wounded, Pkama Lavona, Miyuta Lavona, diminishing, that diminishing it adds and increases and adds an entire new dimension. And that's the lesson to each of us in times like this. And we have to take it to heart, Vachayit Nalibe, and learn those lessons and how to grow in each of us in our own personal way. That's what we do. We don't just shriek and we don't just grieve and we don't just become hysterical. We take it and turn it into something positive. It may be difficult sometimes to do that, but that's exactly what we were trained and taught to do. Okay. I did speak about this topic. I feel a little awkward, actually, to mention other episodes, but I'll mention it anyway because it's not a technical thing for me. This is personal. But I do want to mention it because those that may need more information, I quote many sources. So in episodes 11, unfortunately, quite a few episodes, 11, 61, 83, 188, 222, 233, and 234 about the Pittsburgh tragedy a few months ago, and 244, I spoke about this as well. Take a long pause, and um, I want to mention, since I spoke about the leap year, so I, uh, I should have mentioned this letter last, last week, but let, let me do it now. There's a letter, Purim Cotton Tovshinun Beis. So we're talking about Tezvov Oder Tovshinun Beis, just a little while before Chavzai and Oder, when the Rebbe had the stroke. So it's a, Rebbe, a, a, little, a letter written to all the participants of an annual dinner, Congregation Lev Yitzchak Lubavitch in Hallandale, Florida, and the Rebbe speaks exactly what I spoke about last week, which was really taken from here, that leap year teaches us where the sun and the moon join together, the giver and the receiver. And I just wanted to make mention of this letter, Purim Cotton, on 5752. Again, Cotton, because it's other Rishon. So other, Purim Cotton, Yaakov Cotton, David Cotton, Hamoyer Cotton. All these so-called small, but that, in that small, in that bittel, lies the greatest strengths. If anybody wants a copy of this letter, just email us. You can do this at the anonymous forum, but please add your email and say, please send me the letter about the leap year and give us your email address and we'll be happy to send it to you. That's meaningfullife.com slash mylife. You just go to the forum where you can submit questions, comments, as well as request materials like this letter. Okay. <clears throat> With that, let us move to another question. Should I be concerned over an anonymous letter, chain letter I received? So the person writes, I received an ominous chain letter threatening me with various curses if I do not continue sending out the chain letters to my friends and associates. Should I be concerned over this? <clears throat> so there's sometimes we rely on extrapolating an answer from the Rebbe or based on a different answer or the spirit of, an, of the Rebbe's approach. Here, Thank God we actually have something directly from the Rebbe. It was in the year Tovshin Memvov, and it was a Fabrasicha Zayin Cheshvan. And the Rebbe spoke exactly about this. He spoke that he received a letter from a woman instructing her to send a chain letter to 10 people, and if she doesn't do that, her life will be affected adversely. Terrified, she wrote to the Rebbe, and the Rebbe told her and said at the Fabrengen, to completely ignore it, it has no effect, you always think good, and it shouldn't have any, any, not even a, a smidgen, not even a, a, an iota of any negative reactions to it. 
which of course is consistent with the Rebbe's approach. In general, we spoke about this by an Ayin Hara in episode 99, that we control our destiny. Obviously, there are predispositions different times of the year that have their own challenges, but nothing controls and we should not be given to any type of terror or fears of these type of ominous letters. But then the Rebbe continued, Zayin Cheshvan, and this is a classic Rebbe, just like there is no such thing as just a negative, don't be afraid. The Rebbe said, and I'm paraphrasing, and that's Sikh Zayin Cheshvan Memvov, that's 33 years ago, that everything is Ashgacha Pratis. The fact that the woman turned to the Rebbe, and that meant that the Rebbe was, Pratis, was meant to hear about this type of idea, this wild thing called chain letters, is because chain letters have a powerful impact, a chain reaction. And therefore, we have to use it and channel it for goodness and godliness. What did the Rebbe suggest then? Something that has been done, but I don't think to the extent it should be done. Maybe this is a good opportunity now that we're suffering tragedies. Though it's not an ominous chain letter, but channeling something positive. What did the Rebbe suggest? That everybody should send out 10 letters to people they know, acquaintances, about the importance of praying for Mashiach and waiting imminently for Mashiach's coming. And, and, and informing them to please forward it to another 10 people. In other words, to create a positive chain reaction, a positive ripple effect of this chain letter. So besides the fact not to be afraid of it, there was not just enough defense. We go on the offense. We take a lesson from this, that this is a great opportunity to use it for the good. Today, the Rebbe didn't say this, of course, then it didn't exist. But today, I'm adding, you can do this even easier through email, through social media, through whatever... Uh, whatever platforms, WhatsApps, whatever other tools and instruments and platforms that you have. And now we have even more viral viral power, even then, which was just physical letters. So we have a lesson from the Rebbe. Firstly, these things shouldn't affect anybody. On the contrary, use it as a lesson to send out letters in a positive way and encourage people to do the same, a positive ripple effect that can literally transform the world. So maybe now is the opportunity for those that never heard this directive from the Rebbe, now you heard it to do it. And maybe this can be turned into a whole campaign. I could see this becoming a whole institution, organization, but let's not bureaucratize it. But rather institution meaning something that can be, people can invest and really turn it into something reaching millions of people. And, 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 and all the while fulfilling the Rebbe's directive 33 years ago, Zayin Cheshvan. Okay, let's go on to the next comment and questions. Are there guidelines for using hypnosis to treat mental health? Hirab Simon, please share any reference or just the answer to this question. What are the guidelines for using hypnosis for mental health? The only thing I have found is a letter from the Rebbe dated 21st of Adar Beis, Adar Sheni, 5738, Here is the excerpt from the letter. I would like to make a further point, though entirely not in my domain, the Rebbe writes, namely, In reference to hypnosis as one of the techniques used in psychotherapy, as mentioned in your letter, I have always been wary of any method that deprives a person of the free exercise of his will and which puts him in the power of another person, even temporarily, except, of course, in the case of a life-threatening situation. So I looked around and did not find yet other references to hypnosis. I recall a sikha that Rebbe did mention it, but I still have to find it, and I will 
when I do, I will share with you when I find it. But I wanted to especially throw this out there because if somebody does have a letter, an answer, a reference, a sicha, or anything that you know, please, because for the benefit of others, it's a topic that people deal with and have to address. But I believe this directive is the spirit of what the Rebbe would say, as has said many times in different areas and different arenas, that exactly that. Hypnosis, if it's pikuach nefesh, life-threatening, it's a whole different story. But to use it, the question has to be done with care. The Rebbe doesn't completely preclude it. He says he's wary of a method that deprives a person of control. So people talk about overeating and obesity. Hypnosis is used. It's used in other areas of psychotherapy. So I don't want to come to any conclusive statement about it until we see more material from the Rebbe. What I read, I read. And as you know, I never come to conclusions here anyway. You should talk to your local mashpia, rov, and trusted person who knows Yedidim Evinim, who knows the Rebbe's approach, the Taylor approach, and it has to be addressed case by case because there are definitely areas that it may be possible to be done, even if it's not Bikuach Nefesh. Though this letter clearly almost rejects it entirely, but if I recall correctly, there are some exceptions. But again, we know the Rebbe's answer. Now applying it, you have to take each situation, and again, I request if anybody has any more material from the Rebbe on this, please share it for the benefit of Sarabim for the benefit of the public and for everyone listening to these programs. Okay, next question. And these questions are not necessarily connected. I'm taking them and sometimes in the order as they come in. And, uh, and each has their own personality. But I want to use a good opportunity to mention all questions will be addressed. If not immediately, with time, because there is a backup. But I'm getting there and I feel very happy to report that many of the questions that some of you have sent again, I've already addressed. And so don't please uh, don't give up on me and know that I will address all the questions. They're organized by us. Sometimes I bunch them together if they're a similar topic. So the next question is the world to come. Will we be able to have children in the world to come? Okay. The truth is, I don't know what the spirit and the meaning behind this question is. So I'm going to answer it on face value. But I know that usually questions indicate on something more going on. But this could just be curiosity. <clears throat> so first of all, this is a, this is a pasuk of a fetish, a pasuk in Teira. Hare v'yoled v'yolde yachdov. And the Gemara learns from it that Asida, in the future, which is the world to come, we're talking here the world to come, Mashiach's times in Elam Haba, not Ganeiden, where there's no birth, um, in a literal physical sense, is what says, Ashida Isha Shetel So the Gemara learns it from this verse, the Shabbos Da'af Lamed, I believe, that in the future a woman will give birth every day. There's plenty of commentaries that ask what that means. The Rebbe himself has addressed it, because in Agedas HaKedah Simen Chavov, which is Epistle 26, the Alter Rebbe cites it as well, with some of the Alter Rebbe's interpretation. But it says it, so that's, that's number one. That not only... Will we be able to? We will. And even more so, there'll be even less resistance as the Tzamech Tzaddik brings from Darizal that it'll take nine, instead of nine months, it'll take nine hours to, to give birth from conception to birth in the same day. So the answer is absolutely yes. Now, we're talking about the future. There'll be what's called Chat Charuv. There'll be at Kufa, a stage where the entire existence will be transformed. Then everything is going to be different. And that's not, not in the scope of our discussion here. But if you're asking in the future, yes, absolutely. 
and then it'll be some people explain it'll be Nunashamasi souls that have never been here before. Because or because Mashiach will come in Ben David Ba Achikluk Shamashabaguf, calling a Shamashabaguf. Now Mashiach itself is dependent on all the souls that are have never been to earth should be down here in this world. Or the ones that have to come in a second another Gilgal reincarnation. But then there'll be new Nishamas and another stage of Nishamas. There's many places in Chsidis, well, a number of places in Chsidis that this is discussed. In Beauty Azir from the Tzemach Tzedek, Volume 2, there's a Maimon on this topic, Ginsa, it's called, and you can look it up there. Okay, next question. Now, because I don't know the background behind this, I can't go further than this. I will just say there's always a lesson in this. The lesson is that the Tachlis HaKavone, the ultimate purpose is that an Hashemah should come down into this world, into a body. So of course, if that's the case today, before, before we have the Gula, for sure when the Gula will be here, they'll have the complete fusion of physical and, the materi- and materi- physical and spiritual, where the souls will continue to come down. And then for sure, a Yichud, the unity, a sacred unity, between husband and wife, father will be a bare fruit which is basically a recreation of the creating of something in this world. So if it's happening now, for sure it will happen then. One more point I wanted to make. Okay, next question. Yeshiva Shlichus. When Yeshiva, when Yeshiva sends Bochrim as Talmidim HaShluchim, as emissaries, so Yeshiva sends Shluchim to other Yeshivas, and on Hola, the faculty decides where the Bochrim are going and with whom. So the faculty of each yeshiva that does is they decide who's going and where they're going and who else is in the group. Is the place that you're being sent to, does it have a special meaning as the place that the Rebbe sent you? In other words, is it considered as the Rebbe sending you on the shlichus? And there, and that's where you should go? Or should we consider this as a decision of a group of people of the faculty that could perhaps make a mistake and love Davka? That's the right place for you. Let's say if you feel that it doesn't fit you. Thank you very much. I really enjoy listening to your lessons. It's a very good question. This question was asked, I remember my days in yeshiva, and today for sure I'm sure it's asked. Because <clears throat> at the end of the day, it was the faculty that chose actual Talmidim. They gave it into the Rebbe, and the Rebbe was maskim. But some people thought that the Rebbe himself handpicks, not necessarily. However, because the Rebbe gave the shlichus to the Anhola to do this, and he called them shluchim, and in many cases and instances the Rebbe actually gave dollars or minchemayriv or a tanya or other things to these talmidim, and sometimes to their parents, and stokka, a dollar, and so on. So then it's essentially shliach is a shliach. And apialoche, as the Rebbe says many times, a shliach who makes a shliach, so the next, the second, the shluchim, the talmidim, even though the shliach to make them is the, the faculty of the yeshiva, but they're shluchim of the Rebbe. So the shlichus goes back to the Rebbe. It's not buffered by them. Like in the halach, if somebody makes a shliach, sends a mess emissary to go bring kedushin, a marriage contract, to a potential wife, and he doesn't go himself, he sends a shliach. Who is the wife married to? Not to the shliach, to the man that sent the shliach. And you could do shliach, as shliach, is a shliach, admei shluchim, or more. That means it's a constant process that the shliach essentially, I don't say power of attorney, but essentially gives, extends that power of shlichus. It reminds me of a story of a chosid who once wrote to the Rebbe, 
And the Rebbe, a question, and the Rebbe told him, Katsas Yedidim Mevinim. Like the advice of friends who are who understand, who are experts. And he wrote, told the Rebbe, I want the Rebbe's advice. I don't want Yedidim Mevinim. And the Rebbe said, Vos Ardir, as a Enfren, Durich the Yedidim Mevinim. Why do you mind that I will give you an answer through your friends who are experts? So there's many ways that Rebbe can make a shliach. It can be directly, and it can be, not indirectly, but through another shliach. Habishluchim lemokim, the Ebershter sends many shluchim in different ways. So in that sense, I would say that yes, there is an element of that shliach, is a shliach. Now, can human beings who have free will make a mistake? Of course they can make a mistake. They can make a miscalculation. But that's already something that needs to be fabringed about. Can the faculty who sends someone, and let's say you feel you don't fit in, on one hand you can argue that since you're there as a shliach of the faculty, who's a shliach of the Rebbe, maybe you do fit in. Maybe that's your challenge to figure out how to fit in. Maybe the challenge is that it shouldn't come easy. Or you could say that maybe there there's some element of pchira, and maybe not to say mistake, but maybe there, maybe with discussion, and we have to use our seichel, even when we're given a shlichus of the Rebbe, the Rebbe wants us also to use our intelligence to see what's the best way to do it. So I'm sure that can also be a, another option that, I'm sure, I'm not sure I, could, I should say, that there's two options how you can discuss it. That already is open to Fabrengans. I'm not going to rule on that. I'm just putting it on the table that both possibilities are there. But it's definitely the element of shliach is a shliach. Now, you know, faculty, some people say the faculty in the school is not, they're not uh, worthy of being faculty. So there you can ask the question, so maybe if they're not faculty, are they really shluchim of the Rebbe? That's a whole other discussion. Again, b'chira, of course a teacher or a faculty, even if they are supposed to be shluchim of the Rebbe, but a shlich of the Rebbe could also, unfortunately, be moyal b'shlichuseh. He can do things that are not consistent with the shlichus. But that's already, I believe, another discussion, not necessarily within the scope of this question. Definitely a worthy question to talk about. I must have talked about this in the past. But, uh, and I will talk about it if it comes up again. But that's, as I said, a little going off a little more on a tangent. Next question. What boundaries should be kept when single girls have male teachers? Okay. Hi, Rabbi Jacobson. This is a question I believe many people have and have trouble articulating. As I certainly do. A friend and I were speaking today and we both had the experience of searching for answers to life questions, and then finally finding someone, a rabbi, a man, who seemed to get it, and then feeling confused as to how close is too close for a girl to become to a man who's not her husband. Physical contact is pretty clear-cut. You just don't do it. But emotional contact is harder to define, and it seems to be a pretty common confusion in seminaries where very single girls often have classes and fabrengans with male teachers. Are there specific clear-cut emotional boundaries we should be keeping? At what point does the spiritual or emotional connection that develops when discussing the deeper aspects of life with someone become inappropriate? And what should be done when this is the case? Okay. As I always say, we address every question. This is a real question with real challenges and unfortunately situations that did become inappropriate. So I did discuss the topic indirectly and indirectly in episodes 33, 104, and 105. But being that this question is so direct, let me address it. So first of all, 
<clears throat> a few points. Point number one. This is someone's writing, the writer here is a student. A student should definitely have her boundaries, but above all, her faculty should have boundaries. Because they're the adults, they're the teachers, they're the educators, they're the ones that are setting and teaching standards. So I'm not taking away from your responsibility as a writer, but I want to make, make that point very clear. That the first boundaries have to be created by the people who are the authorities. In this case, the male teachers or the male faculty. Point number one. Point number two, we have a Torah for this. The Torah is called Hilchis Yichud. Hilchis Yichud are laws that are very broad laws that address the issue of inappropriate behavior, but creating boundaries before there's even inappropriate behavior, not even to come to it. Nobody is absolved. Nobody is above the law. And everybody has to follow these laws. Faculties, every faculty, male and female. And if there's a suffolk, if there's a doubt, it's always good to be lechumra in these type of things because of the risks involved. And yes, emotional intimacy can be sometimes even stronger than physical because you become dependent, you become connected, and it affects everybody. And people can be seduced by the mere fact that they have that type of influence. So the boundaries are even stronger when dealing with student and teacher. That's point number two. Point number three is that not only should this be addressed, but it has to be done in a very blatant way. Not to wait till something happens and wait till there's some type of confusion. It should be clear that everybody's comfortable, any student, any girl, any boy for that matter. Speaking to a teacher, a male, in this case a woman, speaking to a man, should not have to even think about this. It should be done in such an appropriate way, that the issue shouldn't even come up. You don't have to wait till it gets to a point where you start saying, what do we do now? And that's why the Hilchas Yichud are literally gdorim, they are like walls you put up, that he doesn't allow to come to situations. How long a conversation should be, when that conversation is happening, is it in the presence of other people. This type of one-on-one, intimate hashpah, should be done woman to woman, man to man. That's my next point. In rare instances where the man is whatever, a woman, a student comes over to a teacher who's male, let him answer briefly, but direct her to appropriate mashpiyah with a hey, meaning someone who is female. So that way you avoid all these issues. If the man has wisdom and his wife is, let's say, his partner, let his wife be the mashpiyah and let her consult with him, with the husband, and he can give his advice through her. It doesn't have to be directly with the student. From the point of view of the student, you can demand this. I don't say you have to demand it in a chutzpah way or make any, um, 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 any accusations, but you could say, I want to speak to you, but I really want to make sure that this is done in a proper halachic and way. The, any male teacher is going to immediately say, of course, and you, you talk about those guidelines. If you don't see it coming from the faculty and the teachers, where it should come from, as I mentioned, then there's, no, there's nothing wrong with you pointing it out in a very direct way. But again, not with accusations, in a very nice, idle way. What's comfortable? Like, you know, who says there should be people, two people, a, a male teacher and a, and a female student should be sitting alone altogether? Maybe it should always be in the presence of his wife or in presence of another, another a female person. As I said, it should be minimal as it is. 
but even when it's necessary, you just put in, build in these things so you avoid the nisyanus, the tests, the challenges, and the forces that we don't always know that get unleashed when people communicate on a personal level. That's my response, and I don't have a black and white formula in each particular case, but this is pretty much straightforward and always best to err on the side of caution and to avoid situations in the first place. Okay. Now we're going to do some follow-up, quite a few follow-ups, so I, I reserved some time to be able to cover as many as I can. I'll start, first of all, a small correction, a slip of the tongue last week when I was speaking about male-female. So I spoke about v'yenuchu bo, v'yenuchu boy, v'yenuchu bom, the three different expressions we say Friday night, Shabbos day and Shabbos, and Shal Shudas by Mincha. I, met, I, I reversed it and I said, Friday night we say v'yenuchu boy, in the masculine. That was incorrect. It's v'yenuchu bo Friday night. Shabbos day is v'yenuchu boy, which is masculine. V'yenuchu bom is both together in them. Correction. Now, in episodes 243-244, we spoke about mental health referrals, people asking for referrals for mental health professionals. So here was a follow-up to that. Hi, Rabbi Jacobson. I'm a bit behind, so perhaps this has already been mentioned. Regarding a homeopathic doctor for depression, I would encourage the writer to first have a full workup of blood tests to check for possible deficiencies in iron, vitamin B, vitamin D, calcium, etc. Very often, even borderline deficiencies in vitamins and minerals can contribute to depression and are easily resolved by taking the proper supplements. Okay? Thank you for weighing in. I just want to say about homeopathy and chiropractory and other things I will be discussing in a future episode um, I, about alternative medicine and so on. As far as referrals goes, listen, we do not uh, medicate ourselves and we do not treat ourselves. I'm not talking about basic things that you can do in your own diet and hygiene, especially by advice of a doctor. So I'm always wary when people have too many homemade remedies, again, ex- except in simple situations, drinking chicken soup, if you have a sore throat, <clears throat> talking about myself, um, and so on. We're not discussing that. So it's always good to have a competent doctor. Okay, We'll talk about, as I said, alternative medicine another time. Another, in episode 245, we also spoke about the difference between nursing versus bottle feeding. So if you haven't heard these episodes, you can always go back to listen to them. So see this as a follow-up. This is like f- some footnotes or some additional addendums that fill the topic, to complete the topic. Dear Rabbi Jacobson, I'm just catching up on the past few episodes. I wanted to comment as a certified lactation counselor on the breast pre- breastfeeding versus bottle feeding question. Given that I'm a lactation counselor, what I'm going to say is going to be quite counterintuitive. The benefits of nurse breastfeeding in a first world society such as ours have been massively exaggerated and sensationalized. The science supposedly proving the massive benefits of breastfeeding and the risks of formula is flimsy at best, and there are plenty of studies that conclude the opposite. Baruch Hashem, we have access to many kinds of formula, clean water to prepare it with, and quality health care in our country. Developmentally, your baby needs a mommy who is feeling happy, calm, and present, infinitely more than they need breast milk. So if you're unable to produce enough milk or breastfeeding is interfering with your mental or emotional health, know that it is Ashgacha Pratis, Divine Providence, and that formula is a gift from Hashem, and use it with Simcha. For more information 
For more information or support, please check out the Fed is Best Foundation online. Okay, thank you for that. As I said, I always welcome comments. I really want this to be a public forum in the fullest sense of the word, so we can cover something from many different perspectives. I present what I have available to me, the things I'm aware of, but there's always more, so thank you for that. Next follow-up. This was about, can anyone publish the Rebbe's talks? So we're discussing this last week and two weeks ago. And as I always want to present something in a balanced way, so I've talked about different aspects of it. I did make reference to a letter from the Friedrich Rebbe, but apparently it's important to emphasize even more, and I'm going to do that now. And um, here's the question that's on rise. Dear Rabbi Jacobson, I greatly admire all that you are doing on this channel, and it is really amazing. However, on the topic of publishing the Rebbe's talks, I do not see how you can diminish the letter published by the Rebbe and mentioned by the Rebbe many times to many people who asked that all the original texts of the talks, letters, and writings of the Rabbeim are only to be published with permission of Kohos. Kohos is Kaharnei Hayutere, an institution the Friedrich Rebbe established in the early 40s and appointed the Rebbe to be head of it, publishing arm of Chabad Lubavitch. I'm just explaining what it is. The letter continues to me. We can discuss and analyze whether this applies to videos or pictures or essays or adaptions. However, regarding the original text in Svarim, it seems quite clear that the Rebbe gave it over fully to Kohos and that no one has a right to publish it without their permission. See an original copy of this letter published by the Rebbe in Sefer Memorim of the Friedrich Rebbe, 5711, page 286. Well, I'm not sure if you heard me, but I did actually cite this letter and acknowledged it, not only acknowledged it, but as I said, I read all letters, so let me continue one more paragraph. You seem to mention this letter and even say, okay, thank you, I didn't realize you acknowledged that, you seem to mention this letter and even say that any author can obviously give over or limit the rights of their content. However, in your general approach, you consistently generalize and state several times that the Rebbe's words and talks are not copyright, and you do not distinguish between the original Sfarim of Chassidus versus people's adaptions or thoughts of the Rebbe's wisdom and instead just suggest that Abonim or Mashpim should get together to see how quality control should be implemented when the Rebbe clearly said how that should be done regarding the Sfarim and original texts. If you can please clarify how your approach is in line with this letter or if you truly were not talking about all the original Sikhs, Igas and Chassidus of our dear Rebbe. Thank you. Okay. And then a letter came in addressing the letter of the Rebbe, the Friedrich Rebbe, and the Rebbe's, which I'll talk about in a moment. <coughs> um, I'll actually read that letter that asked the following question. In listening to you, closely to your last two episodes where you spoke about this topic, I saw that you were going back and forth regarding, on one hand, that the Rebbeim is Teda, just like Moshe Rebbeim is Teda, and that's not copyrightable. On the other hand, there is both Kohos, and you also cited what the Rebbe in Toshim citing what the Alter Rebbe wrote in the beginning of the introduction in the, in the publisher's forward to Tanya, that you have to respect the rights of the publisher. And the Rebbe re-emphasized that in Toshim when he spoke the Mifzah of printing Tanya's everywhere. And I saw that you did not come to anything conclusive, and you kept on weighing the two. I'm not sure why, but I was wondering, is it possible that, and this may be controversial, is it possible that, yes, Kohos was established by the Friedrich Rebbe, he wrote the letter which he wrote, 
The Rebbe, of course, reinforced it a number, number of times. And yet, today, since the Rebbe is not here physically, the people running Kohos, you know, who says that they're always making the correct decisions? When the Rebbe was running Kohos, we know, we could rest up short that he is making the correct decision. So when does Kohos perhaps become, can ultimately turn into a somewhat of a bureaucracy that has perhaps its own personal agendas that are not necessarily consistent with the spirit of the Rebbe and the Friedrich Rebbe? Okay, so here we have it. Two different perspectives. So I think the best thing is, let's go straight to the letter of the Friedrich Rebbe. The letter of the Friedrich Rebbe is dated, and I'm going to read it, I'll read, I'll translate it. It's dated Yudalit Kislev, interestingly, Tavshin Ches. That's 1947, because Yudalit Kislev would probably be in December of 47. So I'm not going to read every word. The Friedrich Rebbe writes that I heard a shmua, a rumor, that some of our Nash and students are printing Svarim in Nigla and Chsidis that, that are related, are Mishtayachim, which means that, that are belong to or connected with the Nesir Chabad, without receiving first Rishus permission. So here I hereby notifying them that printing of Svarim of Nigla and Dach, Nigla and Chsidis, was given Ayad was given to the organization called the publishing house of Kohos Karni Heiteda. And I hereby request that every one of Anash and students should help the organization of Kohos in their holy work to speak with them first, with the, with the Mason of Kohos, in the, in the way they can be helped and, uh, and supported. And Hashem will be matzliach them, begashmis And without this organization of Kohos, Value, no one should, no one should, not one person should print any one of these what I mentioned above. And those that listen to me will be blessed, but Rav Tev with much good, materially and spiritually. In a footnote, which probably the Rebbe wrote, it says, since different people are coming with questions to us about getting permission to print Svarim that have relations with to the Rebbeim of Chabad, so here we're printing a copy of the letter of the Friedrich Rebbe, that should resolve this question. Now, this was published in a Kuntus by the Rebbe of Yud Beis Yud Gimel Tamas, Tov Shin Yud Aleph. Yeah, it's actually the dated is Gimel Tamas Tov Shin Yud Aleph. So, this was a question that the Rebbe said. Since questions are coming in, I we quote, we're printing this letter. Okay, the letter. That's the letter. I'll also cite one place in Sicha called Shabbos Pasha Vayakel Tov Shin Yud Dalad. That would be 1954. Actually, So the Rebbe also spoke about this. He recites this letter, which is, by the way, printed also in Igris Kedish now, in the Friedrich Rebbe's Igris Kedish, volume 9, bottom of page 356. And, um, and it says there's a letter, and he quotes exactly the letter, and even sharper, that no one should print without permission. The world is not a Shus it's not a public entity, is a Shukhayod is a balabos. And even if their kavana is a good one, so till now, they did what they did. But from here on, they, with all their questions and answers, they'll say, we need to print it. It's a tale sarabim. The Rebbe says, I don't have to, I'm not interested in all the questions. Satman needs all these questions. The Rebbe gave his directive, and we don't have to do his job for him. Now, clearly, the Rebbe, of course, was running Kohos, and therefore, Everything was being done and published by the Rebbe. So the Rebbe makes it clear in the Sikha, he recites that letter. Now, 
yes, there is a question. There's no question. Let me, let me clarify. There's no question that this letter is this letter. It stands. No one can change this letter. It's exactly what it says. You could argue, discuss, what is the reason for this? Did, was it just Exodus Akosov Gevolt? Is it because of quality control and financial reasons, meaning investment is being done? Or is there some holier thing in it? The question that could be posed, what about Tata, the fact Moshe Rabbeinu didn't have a kohos, didn't have a publishing organization. And yet, however, we have something that maybe is similar. You can say the actual writing of a Sefer Tata, not everybody can go write a Sefer Tata. There's Hilchus Stam, there's Hilchus Stam, how do you write a Sefer Tata, who can write it, under what conditions, with all the proper necessity. And the Meishe Rabbeinu himself wrote 13 Sifrei Tata to make sure there could be no ziyufim, no forgeries. And the whole process involved in that. And until this day, Sifrei Tata are written with that type of quality control. That's why they remain intact. Is that connected to this? And not, I am not going to come at any conclusive. I'm putting the t- things on the table here. If anybody has interest in, in printing a maimer, a siche, um, especially in the original, from the rabbeim, so you have the hera. The, the matter how you explain it, the lesson, the, the hera is there. So this program here is not coming, God forbid, in any way to question that. But if you put it in the context, is the Rebbe's tera belongs to any company? Does it belong to any entity? Of course not. Tera is tera. But the publishing of this tera in a book form in individual kuntas form, there clearly the Rebbe wanted it a certain way. Someone goes and travels and says, I'm going to chazer a maimer, do they have to call cause for permission? Obviously not. If someone's life was changed by the Rebbe's tater, they disseminate it in many different ways. Again, not through publishing. This is clearly a publishing story. And again, it can explain different reasons, quality control, the other reasons. As far as the question that you asked about kohos, the second question, which is, what happens if the Kohos faculty is not always perfect. Well, no human being is perfect. It's true. No one comes to the Rebbe. And I don't think that the faculty of Kohos is going to say they are like the Rebbe. They'll say, however, someone has to control what the Rebbe wanted Kohos to be. And they're doing their best. Hopefully they have a faculty where they have it's not Dan Yechidi. It's not one person. And they have a staff. And I would hope that if somebody appeals to them and says, you know, I think I have a taina to you. I have a complaint that they would treat it with respect in the proper teredika way, and not just say, hey, we're the authority and, and, and we're not subject to any accountability. That's what I would hope. I think that's the approach, and there's a teredika. Teredika regulates everything. You know, no one would have challenged the Rebbe, obviously, because the Rebbe was, in this case, impeccable, and no one would have discussed it. But if somebody has an issue, by all means, address it. Write a letter, bring it up. Everybody has an accountability, but at the same time, Kohos is amazed that the Rebbe did a Friedrich Rebbe established. He gave what I just read stands. It's a letter that stands just on any part of the Rebbe's Hayra. And I think that fills in all the angles. And by all means, if someone still has comments or questions, feel free to respond and comment and uh, so on. Okay. There's a few more follow ups that I want to address. Next follow-up is not listening to the Rebbe. In episode 247, we spoke about what well, people don't listen to the Rebbe's directive about drinking l'chaim, not more than small four, four small cups. So there was no real comment except about, about people writing. How about some articles on what the Rebbe has told us about our community? There's a lot that's not being upheld. Now, there's other things we don't listen. How do we accept any other issues that the Rebbe advised and people don't listen? 
Look what they're doing to real estate and what the Rebbe said and more. Why don't you ask why isn't every chassid is bainin and a'in and before davening? Okay, so there's a list of things here that we're not perfect in. I don't think that you can just put them all in one pot and two wrongs don't make a right. I was discussing, as the questioner asked, the issue of drinking l'chaim, which is a direct directive of the Rebbe, and frankly, something that shouldn't be that difficult to keep. Other things, obviously, we all want to fulfill the Rebbe's directives. So, but some people wrote this, and I just wanted to share that as well. One more follow-up I'll do. I'm always running behind in the follow-ups. What can I say? Okay. about abortion. Follow-up regarding abortion, episode 247. So one question I didn't fully answer was, lately there have been a few articles about the Torah view on abortion and its differences with Christianity. Do you know if the Rebbe addressed the sensitive topic? Thank you. Are non-Jews allowed to have an abortion? And how does Chassidus explain the prohibition of abortion? Thanks. And there's more questions on this topic. I'm going to have to split it and just address one or two. So first of all, since this is not a halachic forum, I, I, I hesitate and I'm rude to enter that domain. There are plenty, plenty of laws regarding abortion, and you really have to talk to an incompetent of knowing all the particular situation to address it. I'm sticking more to the hashkafa, but since the question is being asked and it overlaps a bit, I will refer you, if you know my book, Torah Meaningful Life, on the chapter on birth, so I talk about the sanctity of life, obviously, from the Rebbe Sichas. And in the footnotes in the back, there's reference of a birth, cite the Gemara in Eilis, Zion, Vov 7.6, um, and Sanhedrin 72b, Rashi's commentary, Nachmanides, Ramban, and the Gemara in Shabbos 107b, and Nida 44b, Me'iri, on Shabbos 107b and Sanhedrin 72b. Where it discusses more this idea, because the question is not just one that people make the mistake, it's purely murder. Because the fact is, if the fetus is a danger to the mother, you save the mother's life. You can't murder someone to save someone else's life. Because, uber yerechime. But that doesn't take away from the element of abortion of being touching, even tampering with, in any way, even tattooing and definitely mutilating a person's own body. So even if it's not a fully viable fetus, but it's part of the, the mother, there are prohibitions. You can't just discuss it as a life, discuss it as a part of a life. And we're the one that already has a spirit beginning to grow within it. So this topic, as I said, is a very complex one, and a subtle one, the laws regarding Jews, regarding non-Jews. Here's not the place to go into it. I just wanted to make some sources here and refer you to the proper authorities on this type of topic. As far as Chassidus' explanation, it's not just Chassidus. Chassidus adds to it, but it's the sanctity of life. When a child is conceived, it's not just an accident. God made a decision that a husband and a wife in sanctity are conceiving a child. They're two partners. The third partner, God, chose to put a soul into that child. Yes, at this point, until birth, it's not a full life. It's still part of the mother's life, but it's that God made a choice. We don't tamper with that. So you're really de- dealing with the issues of sanctity of life itself, sanctity of a new soul developing with a new body. That's the short of it. 
Now, there's more that came in on this topic, but I'm going to have to cut it short because of time. I wanted to now go to this question, of, which is a follow-up to last week's, which I never finished, the, the letter of the Rebbe, a fascinating letter. The discussion was connected to this week's Parshish on the building of the Mishkan. So according to the Ramban, was the Ika Chefetz, was the Ika Keli, the Ika service in the Mishkan, the primary service, was the Oren HaKedush. The Holy Ark, Oren Abris, in the, in, in the Holy of Holies. That's where the Luchas were, and that's the Holy of Holies that only the Chayim Godel went in once a year in, for a short while in Yom Kippur. So the Gemara says about this that there was a miracle there. The space of the Ark was not part of the measurement, which meant that if you measured wall to wall as if the Ark was not there, would be the same thing even if you counted the Ark so though the ark occupied space and measured space, the Torah says so, yet when you, even with the ark sitting there, you measured, it's as if it was not there. It's like it was invisible. Usually you'd measure here, here, and you'd minus the, the cubits that the ark is. So there's this miracle of space and non-space coming together. So we addressed last week a letter from the Rebbe. This is printed in Lekut Tzichas, volume 11, page 319 where the Rebbe negates the idea that you can use this to explain and reconcile the unity of God with the existence of the world. And we discussed that. But then the Rebbe says, now, in Chassidus, this idea of is brought as a proof in understanding the different ways existence relates to above existence, beyond existence, godliness. And the Rebbe says there are three ways this can be understood. And you could say it's Das Tachten, Das Elyon, and that which is above both of them. Now Das Tachten is the perspective from existence, our perspective. Das Elyon is the perspective from the divine looking at existence. And the one that's higher is one that's beyond both perspectives. A perspective that's beyond existence and beyond beyond existence. And the Rebbe says like this. The first, is, the first perspective is, and we look at it in the Aron, the Ark, gives us these perspectives. One perspective is that you measure the ark and you find it to be a Masayim V'chetzi, two and a half uh, cubits length and all the details in its measurement, not more and not less. That's the exact measurement as the Torah, Parsha Truma says the ark should be, length, width, depth, and so on. And that's how it is in truth, according to the Torah, complete truth. It's not, it's not partial truth. It's accurate, absolutely for us, this is how the Torah says you should make. And we see that that was its size. But while you're measuring it and measuring the size of the ark, you know, not not that you see this, you know that if afterwards you're going to measure the Holy of Holies, you'll find Esadam is 10 cubits in all directions as if the ark does not occupy space. What is this an example for? Das Tachten, that how the existence, there's an existence, and, and nevertheless, it's bottled, it's sublimated to godliness. This is called Yechudetata. Something exists, but it's sublimated. And this is an example to tell us. You see existence, it's measurable, but you know that there's a concept that something is beyond the measure of space here. So this is the perspective of the divine Yechudetata. There's a Unidos, is that uftu from the minion for Mokamar Meinim? This is not the real chiddush. They're not the real innovation of 
this concept. Second approach, which is Dasalian from above, Yehudi Allah, you'll measure the Holy of Holies and you'll find 10 cubits in every direction. Bemuchesh. You actually see that there's nothing occupies any space here. But you know in your mind that if you afterwards are going to measure the Ar and the Ark, you'll find that it does occupy space. So you see Bemuchesh with your own perspective from above, you see higher than space even though you know that there's a concept called space. So from, from the bird's eye view, you know there's space, but you don't experience space. You experience that which is beyond space. From this is a dogma, this gives us an example how space itself does not occupy, is not really, is not really uh, relevant, so to speak. And then the third approach is, you look at both things at once. The measuring of the Ark, the measuring of the, of the Holy of Holies, at the same time, both are b'muchesh, you see them both in front of your eyes. That means the Mitzvah of two measurements, they're both equally valid and equally powerful and intense before you. And the Rebbe says, when dos is the ruftu for and This is the Chiddush. Then the Rebbe continues that the difference is, is not how you want to measure it. It's more of a dis- difference in the tchuna, the, the personality of the person who's com- contemplating on godliness and his uplay, his, um, I guess, his perspective. What is more, more what, what is more, what resonates more by him? And what is more of a, of a, of a innovation? So based on a person's perspective, if space is what really we relate to more, or beyond space, that would be first way and the second way, or the third way is the ultimate, understanding space and non-space together. You can look up the letter. The application, of course, is that the ultimate goal is that in the space of existence, we should experience beyond space. Or to put it in more poetic words, we should learn to express the inexpressible. It's not enough just to go transcend space and time. We do it in space and time, in Shabbos, in the weekdays of time, in the space where we live, in Dirabetachtenim, that we should experience that which is beyond space. But there are three stages in doing so. You begin first from your perspective, you see space, but don't worship it. You recognize there are things that are beyond space in a simple way. You realize that a table takes up space, but how about a brain and ideas? You realize one second. Space, conceptual space is very different. Then you come to realize the space of the Arun of the Holy of Holies, another level. But that's still an innovation. Then you come to realize that really non-space, beyond space is reality, and space is the novelty. That the existence is a novelty and godliness is reality, which is beyond space and time. Then you come to realize a fusion of the two. And these are really three levels in our comprehension and our growth, and of course have personal application of how we don't take this world that seriously, even though we need to bring godliness into it, but don't worship it, because everything in this existence is meant to really be a channel for that which is beyond existence, to the point where beyond existence and existence join as one. Okay, we'll do now the three essays. This is still essays from last year's contest. Um, understanding and dealing with events, Chana Spiegel, 836, Jerusalem, Israel, 
Akeres Habayis. She runs a home. She's the foundation of a home. It's in Hebrew. And she basically takes that when you look, in, you look into a newspaper, you see the events of the life of the world. You see this whole randomness and um, all the different challenges of life. So when you look at the events, the events can be very fragmented, but time to change ourselves. She goes on to say how God gave us the strength and Chassidus gives us tools, especially in this high-tech world, to not allow ourselves to become overwhelmed by the events of the world, but to learn to control them and understand them from a deeper perspective. And brings all kinds of different sources in doing this. Well done essay in Hebrew. Just looking, there's a summary here. Yeah. And that allows us to deal with all the challenges of life in a new way. That's essay number one. Thank you, very well done. Next essay, Hasidus Lessons from Physical Therapy. Yecheskel Shimon Gutfreund, age 62, Brighton, Massachusetts. Draper Laboratory Research Scientist. He says, there's a bit of interesting history, history to this essay. A few months ago, I had an injury and had to go to physical therapist and describes that whole therapy went to. And, and the lessons he's learned from this physical therapy is what he goes on. About little specific things. Very well done. About It's not rejection, it's divine redirection. Regaining your spiritual health can be done on cruise control. Real growth requires some pain and effort. Trigger points are not just physical, they are spiritual. And goes on to explain different aspects of the physical theory and how they teach us lessons of Siddhis. Again, a very interesting and creative essay. And I commend you for that. I highly recommend reading it. And finally, the third essay is Letting Go With Love, Resolving the Paradox of Avis Yisrael, Shasha Valofsky, age 29, Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, Job is speech-language pathologist at Nyman Associates. She writes, Your close friendship has soured into a tit-for-tat bursts of fury and verbal abuse. Your romantic relationship has faltered as you realize your partner holds fundamentally different values. One of the greatest challenges everyone faces in life is that of the broken heart. Chassidus leads us to the resolution by first answering three fundamental questions. To the resolution of the questions, how do you move on? How do you grow through this? And the three fundamental questions, what is the connection one Jew has to another? What is the purpose of the broken heart? And what is true Avis Yisrael? And then she goes on to answer these three questions, the interconnected existence of the Jewish bond, the broken heart and God's gift of epiphany, taking Avis Yisrael to the next level. Okay? A very good essay, I must say. And then with a practical guide to distance love, to distance love, she puts it, with a whole list of bullets. So these essays, all well worth reading, very different perspectives, can all be found and seen as they're posted now week by week at MeaningfulLife.com slash essays or slash contest where you can find all the essays. I think that's the correct one. And you can also get them if you subscribe to our emails we send out and post the new essays as they are posted. I want to remind you again, this Tuesday night is the deadline of this year's essay contest. A $10,000 first prize is waiting for you to be won. Second prize, $3,600. Third prize, $1,000. Fourth prize, for students only, a $500 prize. They're also eligible to the higher prizes. And good luck. Follow the guidelines. Follow the guidelines. Show your essay to someone before you, post, before you submit it. 
All, all the information is available. Go to MeaningfulLife.com slash contest. You can submit it in English, in Hebrew, and in Russian, and in Yiddish. Good luck with that. We should only have simchas and enough, enough pain and transform the pain into simcha. That we should only have simchas personally, collectively, in the entire world with simchas, elam al reshem, with the gula amitiz vashlema. This has been Chesidus, My Life Chesidus Applied, episode 248. We're here every Sunday, 8 to 9 p.m. Everyone have a very blessed week, a simcha dika week, but in a very revealed way. Be well.